you can remain standing and turn in your Bibles to Titus chapter 3. We're going to be finishing off our study of Titus this morning by looking at the entire chapter of uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. So Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 15, and I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful." He is self-condemned. When I send Artemis and Tychius to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not to be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. You may be seated. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing and honoring in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And it's in Jesus' name alone that we pray. Amen. Well, the big event in the world of uh, politics this past week was the second Republican primary debate held at the Ronald Reagan Library in California. Um, It was a spirited debate, as they always are, but I cannot watch those debates. I just have a hard time doing it. Um, uh, They make me cringe for some reason. It's just a a hard thing. Uh, I do catch the highlights the next day, uh, try to see who had the best one-liner, who had the best exchange, you know, between one another, Um, but uh, they're hard for me to, to watch. Um, You get a whole bunch of people all on stage, they're all vying for one thing, all thinking that they're the best suited, uh, trying to to take each other down, in a sense. 
and we're sitting back in our chairs hoping for that good one-liner or hearing that good comeback that will, um, that will silence uh, one of their opponents. But um, as I was thinking about it this week, I think primary debates are pretty fascinating, to be honest. Um, in reality, these candidates are all on the same team. It's the Republican primary debate. Uh, a vast majority of the time and on major issues, now there are some that, are, that differ, but a vast majority of these times, uh, these people are all on the same team. They're all Republicans to varying degrees of you know, conservatism. But the way that they debate each other on stage, you would think that they were all on opposite sides, trying to take each other down, trying to show um, how uh, the other person is wrong. Uh, I remember seeing one headline the next day, and uh, I think that this is true, saying that the real winner of the Republican primary debates, they said, is Hillary Clinton. Now, whether or not she's going to be the Democratic uh, nominee, that is yet to be said. But uh, you, get the, you understand what they're meaning there, is that when these Republicans are debating one another, uh, the real winner is the Democratic Party. When people who claim to be on the same sides of the aisle are going after each other's throats, as we see in these primary debates, it casts kind of a dark shadow over the party. And Paul understands this, and so he implores Titus in our passage this morning to remind the Christians on the island of Crete how they are supposed to act in light of the gospel. So we're going to be looking at chapter 3 this morning. Just a quick recap of where we've been through the book of Titus. Um, we've been saying that the, the theme of Titus is that the gospel compels us to good works. Uh, good works is a phrase that is used often, not only in the book of Titus, but several times actually in chapter 3 here this morning. So without the gospel, we are stuck in our sin. Paul says that in, verses, in chapter 3, verse 3 here. We're stuck in our sin Without being rescued by God through the redemption that is purchased by Christ and applied by the Holy Spirit, we can't do good. We're stuck in our sin without the gospel. And our hearts are bent towards all types of evil. But in the gospel, Christ comes and he takes this sinful heart of ours, uh, what the Bible calls a heart of stone, and he gives us a new heart. He gives us a heart of flesh. Therefore, it gives us the power, the ability to be able to do good works. The gospel is the power to do good works. But it's also the gospel is the motivation for us to do good works as well. And we talked about this last week. So because the Holy Spirit renews us, gives us this new heart, this, uh, and indwells within us, uh, our souls are stirred to love Jesus more deeply um, than all the earthly pleasures or passions, which we talked about at the end of chapter 2 last week. And this is where we battle most in our lives. That desire, uh, that love that we have for Jesus um, might be just the slimmest of margins more than the worldly passions. But this is what the Holy Spirit does. Uh, we battle this indwelling sin that uh, still lives inside of us. So because of the nature of the gospel, uh, because it is so all-encompassing, it has the ability to affect every single part of our lives. Every single part. 
including the relationships that we have with one another. The power of the gospel and the potential of the gospel affects everything. And so this is what Paul it calls Titus to remind the church of in chapter 3. So this morning we're going to look at the fact that Paul calls us to devote yourself to applying the gospel to every single aspect of our lives. So because the gospel compels us to godliness, as we've been saying throughout the book of Titus, the life of a Christian should have certain characteristics. Uh, The last thing that Jesus told his disciples as he went up and ascended into heaven, he said that you will be my witnesses when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Uh, Later on in the book of Galatians, Paul describes the life of a Christian, what it looks like. Um, He says in Galatians 5, verses 16 through 24, he says, But I say to you, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. It says, now the work of the flesh are evident. It's sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Then he says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. So the life of a Christian displays these fruits of the Spirit. Do we display them to their full degree all the time? No, of course not. Uh, Do we still display some of these things that he listed, the works of the flesh? Yes, because of the indwelling sin that is within us. But the gospel has the power, the potential to change and create inside every one of us these fruits of the Spirit, because the Spirit now dwells inside of us. Paul says to Titus that living in light of the gospel, living in this way is profitable, but not living this way is unprofitable and worthless. So living this way is profitable. He says this in verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 8. He says, This saying is trustworthy, and I want, I want you to insist on these things so that those who believe in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. And when we live according to the gospel, what we're doing is adorning the doctrine of God our Savior. We looked at that in uh, chapter 2, verse 10, that when we live in light of the gospel, we're actually giving glory to God for that. We're displaying that the gospel truly does have the power to change our hearts, that we believe that the power of the gospel is real. Uh, You remember the testimony of Chuck Colson? He was famous for his Uh, for his role in the Watergate scandal in the Nixon administration. He actually spent time in prison. Coming out of that, he came to know the Lord. And the power of the gospel in his life was very evident. Very evident. He went on to to found prison fellowship. 
And, but he would be the first one to tell you that the glory for such a radical change doesn't go to Chuck Colson for him changing his ways. The glory of that radical change goes to God. And because we see that radical change in the life of Chuck Colson, we don't give glory to Chuck for doing that. We give the glory to God as we see the gospel being played out. And living this way is what Paul says is profitable and excellent for people. But he says not living in this way is unprofitable and worthless. Kind of like the Republican primary debates that I was talking about earlier. As we don't live in light of the gospel, as we quarrel with one another, as we speak evil, as we are disobedient, um, we need to ask ourselves the question as the church, how profitable are our debates within ourselves? How profitable are they for the gospel? If the unbelieving world, if those who are truly lost and dead in their sins, take a good look at the church of Jesus and see a bunch of people who are the opposite of what Paul says here in verse 1. If the, they look at us and see people who are disobedient, who are up to no good, who are harsh with one another, who are speaking evil to each other, who are quarreling with one another, and just downright mean. I mean, what is their impression of the gospel going to be? When Christians and churches and denominations uh, bicker and argue with one another, how profitable is that for the testimony of the gospel? I feel like our desire to be right often overshadows our desire to display the beauty of the gospel. And when that happens, unbelievers have the right to look at us and say, what effect does Jesus actually have? What difference does Jesus make? You know, Jesus told his disciples in John 13, verses 34 through 35, he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. And just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So in reality, people have the opportunity to judge whether or not we love Jesus by how we treat one another. Thankfully, as we've been talking about in the parenting class, thankfully God is sovereign and it's not up to us. Uh, we can feel an intense amount of guilt because maybe our actions don't always display the gospel. Well, it's not our job to draw people to Christ. He uses us, but God is sovereign. 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 2, verse 14 says, But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ, and through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of Him. God is the one who does it through us. God will accomplish His will, and He will ensure that the gospel is properly adorned. So what do we do when we find ourselves exhibiting these characteristics? So because of the nature of indwelling sin, we won't exhibit the characteristics of a heart changed by the gospel all the time. Uh, in verse 8, Paul circles around to the particular issue of quarreling at the end of his explanation of the gospel in verses 3 through 7. 
And we're going to get back to 3 through 7 in just a minute uh, as we close. But Paul warns the church uh, in Crete against quarreling over foolish matters. In the church, we are going to have conflict with one another. Because you can't engage with any sort of relationship uh, on any sort of level with another person and not have some sort of conflict. Uh, There was a girl that I dated when I was in college. We dated for about two years. And I thought the relationship was great because we never had any conflict. I was living in a dream world because in reality, uh, what was happening is I was acting in such a way that I wouldn't cause any stress to the relationship and I would just keep the peace. Um, Looking back on the relationship, there was no depth there. When I do premarital counseling with couples, um, I speak about conflict in terms of when it will happen, not if it will happen. I'm not going to have a show of hands, but who in their marriage has ever had conflict with their spouse? When we engage in relationship with each other, there is conflict. So when I do premarital counseling, I, I talk about how to have conflict well with each other of how to apply the gospel to that. I talk about the when it will happen, not if it will happen. I remember our premarital counselor um, had told Stephanie that a good, uh, a good activity for us as we were preparing for marriage is to take a canoe trip together. <laughs> he says, um, you can't get through a canoe trip <laughs> uh, without having some sort of conflict, whether you're sitting in the back or in the front. Paddle on the other side. No, you paddle on the other. Why are we going over there? (laughs) Uh, So uh, we did that. It was after we were married, uh, and we enjoyed that. Uh, And that's actually something that I recommend um, uh, in my premarital counseling as well. Because conflict is going to happen in any sort of relationship. So in the church, we often tend towards foolish conflict, if we will be honest with ourselves. Uh, We joke about churches who have split for such... Uh, innocuous reasons over the color of the carpet or or things of that nature. Uh, We often find more joy and satisfaction in debating minute points of theology, like whether you are pre, post, or amillennial. It's not unheard of in churches to discuss what worship should or shouldn't look like. And we often spend more time talking about that than we actually spend engaging in worship. Honestly, reading the passage uh, that we've read this morning has encouraged me as your pastor and the moderator of our session. Uh, What do we talk about in our session meetings? Do we major on the majors or do we major on the minors? Um, The majors are what is profitable and important, like shepherding the flock that God has given to us, teaching the truths of God's word and praying. We have a session meeting coming up next week. Everyone is invited, by the way, if anybody wants to come. Very few people have taken me up on that offer, but it is open if anyone would like to come. And it it has caused me to consider what we spend our time on. Do we spend our time on uh, foolish issues that are unprofitable, or do we spend our time on things that are profitable? So how do we handle conflict appropriately in the church? How do we do that? Paul gives an outline here briefly in verse 9 and verse 10. And what his outline does here is outline also 
uh, is very similar to Matthew 18, which Jesus gives us. But Paul says here in verse 10, he says, Warn a divisive person once, and then warn him a second time. And after that, have nothing to do with him. Jesus says in Matthew 18, he says, If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along so that, the, that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. You know, there are several conflicts that we read about between believers in the church. Uh, Peter and Paul had a very famous conflict that we read about in the book of Galatians, where Paul dressed Peter down publicly because of a sin that he was performing publicly. Uh, we read about in the book of Philippians of two women who have been immortalized by the conflict that they had with one another, uh, Euodia and Syntyche. Um, and Paul encourages um, the, those two to agree with one another in the Lord. Paul urges them and he urges us to do the same thing. So when we find ourselves engaged in conflict, we don't run to it looking to go on the attack, but we don't shy away from it either. Instead, what we do is we apply the gospel to it in an appropriate way. And this is what Paul is calling us to this morning. He says, foolish quarreling has no benefit, but conflict that is handled appropriately according to the gospel has tremendous benefit. It's like the gold or the silver that goes through this refining process where the impurities are removed. Um, I've done some study uh, on marriage, and it, many studies that have been conducted on marriage and divorce, they say that people who uh, stay married through a season of conflict rather than getting divorced report that their marriage is actually stronger following the conflict than it was prior to it. They say that there's usually like a five-year window where people will really struggle. And if during that five-year period, rather than getting divorced, they actually work through those conflicts, at the end of five years, they report that their marriages are much stronger and have developed stronger bonds uh, by going through that conflict together. But usually what happens when the going gets tough in a marriage is that we cut and run. But in marriage, as in all relationships, if we stay and if we move toward one another and apply the gospel, we have the potential for restoration and depth of relationship. Um, in our missional community groups, we were going through the, uh, uh, the, the booklet called Gospel-Centered Life. And at the end, there's a couple of uh, lessons, lesson eight and nine, and uh, about articles about forgiveness and about conflict. And this is taken from uh, one of those articles. They say, gospel-centered confrontation mirrors God's movement toward us in the gospel. God did not pour out his wrath on us, and he did not remove his presence from us. Instead, he sacrificially moved toward us in the person of Jesus, full of grace and truth. Jesus confronted sin, invited relationship, and provided a way of reconciliation. Thus, the gospel provides the pattern of biblical conflict resolution. We have a proper motivation, which is love. We have confidence, faith, 
and the means for resolving conflict, which is grace and truth. And this is what Paul is calling us to here in verses 3 through 8 of chapter 3. And this is where we will conclude this morning. It's with the gospel. This is what Paul calls us to. You know that Paul says in Titus 3, verse 3, he says, At one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. You know that there's a phrase that people say nowadays. They say, don't be a hater. I know there's not many teenagers here in the crowd, but it's one that teenagers use often. Say, don't be a hater. But according to Paul, we are all haters outside of Christ. This is the aspect of the gospel that we often give lip service to, but I don't know if we really understand the depth of it. I don't know if we really understand the full implications. It's our total depravity. It's our inability to come to God because of our sinful hearts. It's our shaking our fists at God because we are actually enemies of Him. This is what each of us and every one of us was outside of Christ. But then comes one of the most beautiful words in the Bible. It's just this little three-letter word, but. This is what we were, but. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of righteous things that we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth, the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, so that having been justified by His grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. God saved us through Christ and through the power of the Holy Spirit. We have been reconciled to God through Christ. We have been reconciled to God through Christ. Where once we were enemies, literally shaking our fist at God, we have been now reconciled to Him. And because we've been reconciled to God, we also have reconciliation with one another. Therefore, the gospel is the power and it's the motivation for us to do good works. It's the power for good works because in the gospel, Christ comes and He gives us a new heart. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit and we are enabled now to do good. But the gospel is also the motivation to do good works. Because of the renewal of the Holy Spirit in us, as we see in verse 5, we are stirred in our souls to love Jesus above all things, more than any other earthly pleasures or passions, even as we said, even if it's by the slimmest of margins. So my hope and my prayer that as we studied the book of Titus, as we have gone through this over the last couple of months, that the, the word good works is no longer a, a four-letter word in our vocabulary. That it's a good thing. That as Christians, it's something that we strive for. Paul's letter to Titus has helped me see the importance of our conduct as Christians that we would be encouraged in living lives that actually reflect God's change inside of us. But the Christian life, or Christian living, occurs after believing the gospel, the good news of what Christ has done for us. 
And believing the gospel compels us to live the gospel, engaged in good works by the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us because of this redemption that is purchased by Christ and to the glory of God the Father. Let us pray. Our most gracious God and our Father in heaven, Lord, thank you for uh, Paul's letter to, to Titus and to the church there on the island of Crete. Uh, thank you uh, for displaying the truth of the gospel to us. And I pray that the truth of the gospel would dwell inside of us richly, that we would be moved and changed by the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, and that you would compel us to good works, that the lives that we live would adorn the doctrine of God our Savior, that through the way that we live, that you would receive glory and honor and praise. I pray that when people look at our lives, they would see you. Lord, not for our own glory, but for your glory and for the advancement of your kingdom. Lord, I pray that we would take advantage of the opportunities that you have placed before us. Lord, I, I pray that we would vividly display uh, the good news of the gospel. Lord, that you would use us for the advancement of it here in Sherwood and to the ends of the earth. And we pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.